We have to grasp that the biosphere is an absolute boundary that limits our behaviour. Then you say, okay, well, how do you get that biosphere imperative to made real in the practical functioning of humans? Put it into every constitution. Having got that in, then that's when change starts to happen, when action starts to happen. Hello. And welcome to the second series of the Hidden Power podcast called Pre-Flight Checklist. It's a useful analogy which we are using to think about getting the best out of our little lives on Spaceship Earth, using something that profoundly impacts our lives, but none of us ever really see, a constitution. In this series, we explore one by one each of the 26 principles that would govern a pleasant life through and at the far side of the current climate emergency. I'm Philip Tottenham, and my co-presenter is the author of these principles, Ed Straw. Principle 7. Elections shall be representative. Nice. Couldn't be simpler. I noticed in your book you have a brief expanding on that, saying this means using a good system of proportional representation, limited and proportionate political party funding, voter registration at birth, and electoral boundaries set independently of government and parties by the second or vetting chamber or by an independent electoral commission. So those are four good points to build on, which we can loop back to later on. But first, I think, let's just do a quick review of, of where we've been. So we've come from the whole first part of the series on biosphere and people which I think has really been about setting up what the point of all this is, as in who's it serving? Establishing the framework, the biophysical world at the centre, moving on to how is that articulated, people and constitutional sovereignty. How do we make sure that happens? Well, we need the rule of law and we need a constitutional court as our referee to accept diversity in pretty much all things, but particularly diversity of lifestyles. And then what is in and out of the commons, the land, digital commons and all the rest of it, well, explicit democratic decisions should be made. Now we're moving on to democracy and subsidiarity, which brings us to today. It seems on the face of it very simple that, I mean, obviously elections are representative. And yet, once we dig into it, the system that we have in many countries, this sort of majoritarian first-past-the-post system, is really something of a distortion field that appears to be representative, but perhaps, well, ultimately ends up with minority governments, as you say. And There are a few points that you've identified about that, which I'd like to quickly run through, and then we can dive into the main ones. So it results in the the two-party state, which um, basically limits power, limits choice, and therefore limits power. And then we have this subsequent oscillation or zigzagging, as you put it, of of policies, which ultimately means very slow or, or no progress, and therefore perpetual reform quote unquote, which really means just sort of undoing what the previous lot have done, which we've seen, of course, a lot of recently with the American presidency of Donald Trump. And then following from that, of course, you have this 
syndrome of ideology rather than reality running things. So there's a bit of a disconnect between what is talked about in government and what's going on on the ground, which in turn makes politics a kind of a news media sport rather than a democratic discussion and means that the power brokers like Rupert Murdoch's can more easily manipulate what's going on. Mm. And so we have this adversarial political noise, which in turn allows for your one of your favourite subjects, pre- preferential lobbying. And then, as we see, in, in particularly with regards to Brexit, this sort of gripping of not just Brexit, actually also with, with previous governments, but um, this sort of gripping by whips and the minority government. So we're basically in the hands of extremists. And yeah. I look at this and I think, well, what happened to the sort of the consensus of the centre? Just to preface, in Europe, there are only two countries that use first-past-the-post. One is the UK and the other is Belarus, which is not exactly a good advert as a partner. Um, and a big... where do, how, how have we ended up with first-past-the-post? I mean, that must be serving somebody. Yes, it, it most certainly is. I mean, it serves the two major parties. The issue is that the Conservatives, by and large, know that they would never command a majority without first-past-the-post. So currently, just to illustrate that point, the current government actually won 29% of the vote. So that's less the, than a third. Le- they yeah, got less, less than a third of the less vote. Than third, less than a third. And, and of course, then you get this slicing where within the Conservative Party, then there is an election for leader and you get one tendency or another tendency that takes control. In this case, we've got this ideologically driven group. So you get a tiny, tiny proportion in government. Then Labour comes along. 1997, it's committed to looking at uh, proportional representation. They had a commission run by Roy Jenkins, and they came up with something fairly limp in terms of a bit more proportionality, but not proper proportional representation. You know, they got carried away with being in power. As ever with politicians, they didn't realise that politics is an accumulator. <laughs> you know, well, what do you mean by that, that, that it, politics is an accumulator? It's an accumulator. So if you look at what is going on in the country at present, how much of that is as a result of what the current government has done and how much of it is a result of what previous governments have done? And okay, um, you might look around and say, well, you know, they've done this and they've done that and so on and so forth. But if you look carefully at it, there's a huge hinterland of previous laws, regulations, decisions, statutes and all the rest of it, which makes up what happens today. So if you just assume, as many politicians do, that it's all about them uh, Mm. and things will work better because they are in power, this is the old ego talking, and they can't really see beyond themselves in power. What they don't then see is that actually you need to look ahead and you need, for example, in this case, the Labour Party needs to put in place a system of proportional representation because otherwise what happens is what has happened is mm. that the Conservatives will, by and large, be in power with the occasional interjection of 
Labour, which in a way sort of legitimises the whole um, scam. Um, mm. So that's one of the points. Another of the points that you picked up there is with First Past the Post, the way in which it opens itself to a very significant media manipulation. So why does Rupert Murdoch say that he doesn't bother with Brussels because they don't listen to him? Well, in Brussels, EU, how is he going to influence decisions and have some power? Well, he can't because they are not elected. Mm. And there are however many states there are now in the, the EU. And if he wants to have some influence, then he's got to sort of sign up as many of the 32 prime ministers stroke presidents as there are in the Council of Europe. So come to Britain, however, and mm. there you have... Two parties competing for power. In the case of Tony Blair, before the 1997 election, as he said to the Limson inquiry, what else can I do but go and court him? Because mm. he controls 40% of the British press. So you go over to Murdoch. Murdoch is interested about uh, Labour's policies and so on, and quite happy that they're continuing essentially with the economic system. Tick. He, at that time, had interests in... Well, first of all, being allowed to continue with his monopoly of newspaper ownership. Secondly, to get as many sports to be allowed to be privatised in terms of their viewing taken off free-to-air television. Thirdly, to allow Sky its continuing monopoly satellite broadcasting, which prior to the internet coming into uh, its own was a very big deal. There's no explicit agreement and handshake. Mm. If Blair doesn't agree, then he'll pop over to the other guy because you've only yeah. got a choice of two. If you've got proportional representation, there may well be two, possibly three parties forming the coalition. Well, it gets pretty damn difficult for him to sign up all of those and even mm. more difficult for him to then manipulate those into following his every wish. And so when we... You talk about political or preferential lobbying he is perhaps the the star lobbyist what other lobbyists would be weeded out by a system of proportional representation you've got to be careful here because preferential lobbying happens all over the place mm. including indeed in the eu for the, the various reasons and we could put a link into the pieces that I've done recently on preferential lobbying, you know, what it is, uh, mm, how it arises, be a good idea. How, to, how to stop it. But there are all sorts of other factors, including just knowledge and experience and skill of the very small group of people typically at the centre taking decisions and taking decisions in private. So in effect, the public get excluded. But when you come to two parties, the power to go, well, my influence in terms of news media, particularly in the States, and, and indeed in this country, but particularly in the States, the power of money to say, right, we're going to fund the Democrat candidates or we're going to fund the Republican candidates is absolutely enormous. Mm. And so preferential lobbying is basically the way decisions get taken in the States, unless there's absolute extreme public pressure. Well, this is the famous swamp um, that was going to be drained, isn't it? The... 
in in the US in, in that amazing piece of, of blatant sarcasm. Interestingly, draining the swamp, the US Congress not so long ago, there was a move there which understood this and indeed made proposals for limited and proportional political party funding. So in other words, you're not owned by the wealthy and by business. Uh, voter registration, electoral boundaries set independently. So, hmm. I mean, they know all of this stuff, but needless to say, those proposals uh, died in Congress. So hmm. they know what well, to do, but they, they've not done it. Well, let's and, get to the, the principle. So the principle is that elections shall be representative as opposed to hmm. pseudo-representative. And as you say, this means using a good system of proportional representation, limited and proportionate pol political party funding, voter registration at birth, and electoral boundaries set independently of government and parties by the second or vetting chamber yeah. or an independent electoral commission. Should we go to proportional representation first? The emphasis there is on a good system of proportional representation because it's perfectly possible to have proportional representation which is a not-so-good system or indeed a bad system or, or a sort of half-baked system. Mm. In Australia, for example, they have a half-baked system of proportional representation which produces some better outcomes, but it's not nearly as good and representative and fair as proper system of proportional representation. So the point there is that, first of all, Surely, people's voices should be represented in mm. Parliament. People often turn around and say, well, oh, yes, but you'll have these, you know, dreadful people like UKIP or the old British National Party in mm. Parliament, and they'll be able to say things. Well, that's sort of the point, because if those views exist out there, then it is only fair uh, and reasonable that they should be represented. As soon as you get the views out into the open, mm. then there's the opportunity to debate them. Otherwise, the debate just takes place in the corners, in the margins. Yes, and but, there's an obvious risk in, in terms of it going underground or becoming a, a silent yeah, uh, and, threat. And I mean, in, in, in many respects, you can look at the various perceptions and views and experiences of people who voted Brexit, on the one hand, they may have been taking an entirely rational decision in their views. But on the other hand, a lot of that came from the fact that they have not been represented. There was an interesting article in the London Review of Books, I think, by a journalist travelling between Remain voting areas and the Brexit voting areas and reporting that he, he felt that he was in two different countries. One yeah. was run down and depressed and the other one was basically yeah. all the places that people who can choose where they want to, to live because they can work remotely yeah. were moving to and yeah. obviously driving up the property prices. So that, that was, and I, yeah. again, that's where I suppose the, the sort of um, liberal consensus um, obviously let all those people down by virtue of the fact, as you say, that they didn't have the representation. I want to just drill into the, there are three proportional representation systems outlined by the Electoral Reform Society on, on the link that we'll put in, in the show notes. Yeah. One is called party list. Yeah. One is called additional member, which I think is used in both Wales and Scotland, and apparently with, with some success. 
And then there's single transferable vote, which is used in Ireland. Again, actually with some success. I mean, Ireland scores quite highly now in terms of its democracy, although seemingly that actually was written into the original constitution. What what is the party list? You have a slate of candidates put forward by each party for uh, a regional area. And then within that area, people will vote in a way that produces, you you know, let's say, for example, 50% uh, Labour. So in that area, you'll get 50% of the elected candidates being Labour, you know, 10% Mm. Green, so 10%. So it's aimed at uh, making these proportional. The additional member system is worked on the basis of trying to maintain the constituency link. And mm. um, so here I, you know, have a person that I know is, quotes, my MP. Mm. And then STV. That's a single transferable vote. You vote one for your first choice, two for your second choice, three for your third choice, and so on. And then depending on how big the constituency is it might be just the top one that gets in it might be the top five or indeed the top 10 that gets in but every time a candidate you have voted for falls your votes get transferred to your second choice Mm. hence single transferable vote now this system works very well and is i think undoubtedly the best system when you're voting simply for one person so if you were voting for a president, if you were voting for an executive mayor, then everyone can put in mm. one, two, three, four, and the way in which the votes get reallocated means that the one that ends up with a majority, preponderantly, that's the choice. And you um, seem to have a problem with that with regards to party politics. Interestingly, when you come to national elections where you're voting for multiple people, the systems that give, in practice, better proportionality, so 50% for Labour, they get 50% of the votes, 10% for the Greens, so so on and so forth. In practice, the list or the additional member system give greater proportionality than the single transferable vote. And the Electoral Reform Society did a report in March 2020 on the 2019 general election and modelled what would have happened under different systems. And some of these produced not as good proportionality. So, So there is a debate to be had about precisely which system. Curiously, the Electoral Reform Society, which has become a bit of an odd organization and not terribly effective sadly it still has in its constitution that stv is the system we must have which is an oddity since its report indicates very clearly that well no you wouldn't have that as a so system. which system came out tops then if stv was, uh, was less proportional in this case the party list pr right. i mean with a word of warning here i mean you'd need to do some more modeling to decide whether actually that's the system you want. There are some quite important caveats to all of this because good systems of proportionality have a limit 
a bottom limit where, for example, in Germany, if you're below 5% of the vote, you don't actually get any seats. Mm. So this cuts off the huge tail of MPs sitting in an assembly who could well have some influence, but, you know, do make the system very, very difficult to manage, which I I think Mm. was your concern. That was the Italian system, which I think at one point, and, and maybe even now, had 30 parties in Parliament so you need to decide on a, on a bottom cutoff for how many you're going to have. Well, let, let's yeah, let's come back to that. I think that the so of your your four points there. Well, we've discussed um, party funding a little bit, and I think electoral boundaries. If you take the electoral boundaries, and so you shift a chunk of people who typically vote Democrat and you shift them by redrawing the boundaries into a safe Democrat seat and take them out of a seat that the Republicans could win, then you have fixed the system, you gerrymandered the system. If you try to exclude voters, they're trying it in this country by uh, requiring identification, by requiring perhaps even electronic voting, um, which is more likely to favour people obviously familiar with electronics and determined to vote, then you can exclude people. And that's exactly what the Republicans have been doing over many years in local elections and in presidential elections. This time around, the Democrats, backed by some big business that were getting fed up with Trump, and activists really got themselves sorted out. And that's why you saw so many postal votes coming mm. in. You would have seen the election being delayed. The point is, none of this must be in the hands of the government, because if it's in the hands of the government, then governments with the best will in the world are going to tend to want to manipulate all of this to their advantage. So you have an independent electoral commission or you put it into a very independent uh, second chamber, the House of Lords, and it's for them to draw up neutral rules, a level playing field between all sides. I mean, that applies particularly then to political party funding, where historically in the UK, the Conservatives have always had far more money than, well, Labour and any of the other parties. And it, again, unbalances the playing field. It's all about the accretion or the accumulation of power with the people in power. But the voter registration at birth, what's the benefit there? Well, yeah, it's what Norway does. Hmm. And it's in order to vote, you have to register. And so you, in this country, you get a piece of paper at the age of 18 or before you're 18 saying, you know, do you want to register to vote? Um, and your parents may well sit there and put you down and away you go. If you're in a household that's not that well organised or is immensely pressured, barely get enough money in to eat, uh, let alone fill in another bureaucratic form in any way, they'd be scared about bureaucratic forms, then a lot of those people don't register. And that means that they can't vote. And then they're part of the left behind the excluded and so on. 
what they do in Norway is simply say, when you're born, you're automatically registered to vote. And since you're a person, you are entitled to vote. And it just takes all of the nonsense and the messing right, around. Right, and simplifies things massively. It means one person, one vote, and prevents governments again unleveling the playing field. So there, there are various benefits that we see in countries using proportional representation. And you've listed a few in our notes, and I'd like to quickly run through them again and can dig into the detail as we have time mm. for us. So overall, obviously, the benefit of fairness and equal votes. An interesting mm. one is political diversity. So this is what you're saying about having parties like the British National Party out in the open rather than sort of hiding. Yeah, particularly these days, the Greens, for goodness sake. We need that voice in Parliament Mm. in a very big way. Yes, and then further benefits include end to minority rule, where we've talked about that, and then consensus, not majoritarian government. So there are shades of first-past-the-post, which are still, they're not first-past-the-post, but they're still majoritarian as, for example, you have in France and and elsewhere. But the difference is with consensus. Now, I think this is a good time to dig into Italy a little bit, because, and we'll link it in the show notes, but I heard this great um, inquiry podcast, the BBC Inquiry, where they talk about why politics in Italy has been so dysfunctional for so long. And I think almost every year since the Second World War, a prime minister has resigned. And they pinned this down to partly the deep divisions in politics after the war between fascists and anti-fascists. But then also in government, in the system of proportional representation that they had, they were so worried about the political extremes that they made deals to keep the centrists in power, which then led to cultures of corruption. So this is quite an interesting counter-argument to what we've been saying Uh, With regards to, for example, Germany and Japan, also post-war, also had uh, a new constitution, which seems to have been remarkably effective, whereas in Italy, it doesn't seem to have been quite so effective. Um, And indeed, the proportional representation has uh, somewhat stuttered and ended up with people like uh, Silvio Berlusconi, who I think perhaps represents a degree of cynicism or perhaps even naivety uh, with regards to personality politics. And I just wondered, is there anything that you can see in, in Italy that they could have done to ensure that their system of proportional representation would have worked better? Well, A, what I said earlier, so having a cutoff, so you don't have 30 parties in their equivalent of parliament, you have possibly slightly more than Germany, where it's essentially it's three. So, you know, you limit the scope I mean, I, th- I think that if you look at Italy, you know, it's a sort of hugely long running uh, history, uh, which had nothing to do with proportional representation, but a hugely long running history of administrative corruption. The mafia um, mm. had quite a hold in small and large ways. And of course, that all predated uh, proportional representation. The interesting thing about Italy, on the other hand, is that parts of its constitution have functioned very well because for 50 years after the war, I mean, Italy flourished. 
And it's only in the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years that the wheels have essentially fallen off. And you say, well, how on earth with chaotic government could it have flourished? Well, you then find that the strong local government powers, a real history of civil society and local government working to make towns Mm. work, some very good and able industries and you think well so how did they work out and I think some of Italy's success was down to the very fact that government was essentially inept and often corrupt and so people went okay we better sort this out for ourselves and and there's another interlink point there actually a couple of years back Belgium had its election it couldn't form a coalition it was effectively without a formal political government for a year. And a lot of people going, oh, shock horror, you know, these coalitions are dreadful, instability and all the rest of it. Actually, a lot of people turned around and said it was really good Mm. not having a government endlessly tinkering, fiddling around, reforming this and not reforming it. People could actually get on and do their jobs in public services and in business and make things work without that endless political noise. I mean, if you take Angela Merkel, surely the epitome of strong and stable, uh, the cry that often goes up here, indeed that Theresa May used, Angela Merkel has been in coalition for her entire political career. And indeed, just to emphasise the point for a good chunk of that, That was with the STP. So in effect, you've got a coalition of Conservatives and Labour in power with Angela Merkel as the Chancellor. And, you know, she's done pretty well. Uh, Germany has done pretty well. The point, though, about consensus rather than majoritarian. So with a consensus government, there are huge swathes of life which really aren't about politics. So does everyone want a decent health service? Yes. Does everyone want a decent school system? Yes. Does everyone want a fair and just, and I'm talking about fair to both the taxpayers and the benefit recipients, a fair welfare system? Yes. So why the hell does that become a matter of politics? Well, in consensus-based democracies, it doesn't. In majoritarian-based democracies, as we've seen here, our health and school systems have been under continuous reform since the early 80s. And of course, we have this parallel lack of interest and lack of trust in government. Whereas Switzerland, for example, that does have a version of proportional representation and indeed subsidiarity, Mm. has the highest trust in government in the world. Also, interestingly, in Switzerland, if you look at its federal council, which is in effect, if you like, its cabinet, which is always a coalition, you'll find certainly good representation of women and often a majority representation of women. So rather than here, where we're having to say, well, you know, we must have quotas, If you have the right system, the right system will produce diversity and the right system is PR producing consensus. And of course, consensus and and again, these these are stereotypes, but often you'll find women in business, and I remember doing a course on this, will work much more through consensus. So it'll be a much happier environment for them rather than, if you like, having to be a Margaret 
Thatcher or a pretty Patel and in effect, you know, sticking your elbows out and having them sharply pointed as many of the men do. Well, Um, that's a good place to close up. And, you know, we've got some great links this week about all of that, including makevotesmatter.org.uk, which is where anyone can support proportional representation. Yes, and if you you want uh, just uh, action points, if I could just end on that, I mean, if you want to do something about proportional representation in the UK, then join Make Votes Matter that's Mm. doing a terrific job on a very, very small budget. Let's look forward to next week now. So this is the second principle under democracy and subsidiarity. Right. So uh, we need representative democracy, but we also need deliberative democracy. So number eight is a right to deliberative referenda shall exist. Specific issues shall be resolved through a process of engage, deliberate, decide. And that brings us back to episode one of the first series where we talked a bit about Engage, Deliberate, Decide, but we will talk about it again next week. Ed, we're there. Your memory memory is much better than mine. (laughs) Thank you very much.